Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Technology Law Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Ward. This podcast is focused on the craft and practice of executing technology transactions, cloud services deals, software development and licensing, professional services. You can learn more about me and my technology law practice at the jaywardlaw.com website, and you spell out the J-A-Y. On today's episode, we take a look at one of the least sexy, but most important segments of the field of technology transactions, and that is the subject of purchasing technology products. I'm happy to welcome my first guest, Chris Nixon of Pete's Coffee and Tea to the podcast. In the technology transactions arena, there's a lot of time and attention paid to services, especially cloud services, and intellectual property deals, software development and patent and software licensing. However, our entire technology industry, frankly, our entire global economy, couldn't exist without the purchase and sale of billions of dollars of technology products every year. Telephones, monitors, testing equipment, servers, from simple products such as USB cables to laptops and desktop computers to sophisticated robotic equipment, technology product, the technology product sector drives a huge part of the technology industry and global GDP. We will explore the topic of doing technology product deals with Chris Nixon, a procurement executive for Pete's Coffee and Tea. Chris and I met when he was a senior procurement executive for Zymergen, and I was helping the company on a long-term basis with an on-site role, helping with commercial and technology-focused transactions. I hope you enjoy the interview. This is the Technology Law Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Ward, and we're here today to talk uh, technology product purchasing with Chris Nixon. Uh, Chris is a procurement executive at Pete's, and we met when he was a client of mine over at Zymergen. And uh, Chris Nixon, welcome to the the podcast. Well, thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me. Chris, let's start off with a bit of background on you. Uh, Who are you? What do you do? And how did you get into procurement? Sure. Uh, So I am essentially a 20-year veteran uh, supply chain and procurement professional uh, with a background primarily in manufacturing, consumer products groups, uh, engineering, and life sciences. Uh, I first entered procurement after an early stint in my career uh, as a recruiter, uh, staffing legal professionals, attorneys, and paralegals in the New York metropolitan area. Uh, But I was looking for a career change and something that resonated more with me. Uh, So I was lucky enough to find myself into a junior procurement role. Uh, with a manufacturing company based in northern New Jersey. Cool, cool. And what's your current role? What are you doing? Um, My current role is I lead sourcing for Pete's Coffee here in Emeryville, California. Cool, good. Um, In your career, give me a sense of, just in terms of products, how much in terms of technology products have you been responsible for purchasing in your career? Sure. On the IT product side, cumulatively, probably about $150 in total. That's very cool. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Let's start with something easy. Tell, I mean, um, tell us what a purchase order is and how does a purchase order differ from a contract? Well, a purchase order essentially is defined as a written or sometimes an unwritten oral uh, agreement between a buyer and a seller for any number of goods or services uh, to be provided and received. Uh, and a purchase order in and of itself functions and is a 
contract. Mm -hmm. uh, it typically lacks the level of detail or specificity that, say, uh, a master services or supply agreement might, or a construction contract, for example, uh, that often have a lot more specific terms relevant to the goods or services in question. Uh, but for most common or straightforward, typical, uh, simple purchases, uh, a purchase order with uh, standard terms and conditions, which tend to be a very condensed version of what you might find in a more complicated contract, uh, suffice. Do you think purchase orders and written contracts are equivalent for the term for the purchase of technology products? Do you have a preference one way or another? Uh, I think it depends on the complexity. Uh, if we're talking about the purchase of very simple, basic, uh, what I would call white box things like uh, computer peripherals, uh, say keyboards, mice, um, flash drives, things of this sort, uh, certainly purchase orders are typically sufficient. Uh, where we talk about uh, larger purchases, things that may be more complex, such as rack servers, um, any other number of uh, larger technology needs, uh, complicated uh, UPS or uninterrupted power supply systems, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, oftentimes, a more sophisticated contract is really what, what would be needed. So let's talk about that. Using or going to a contract, um, what are the key risks as a buyer you're trying to mitigate in setting up a contract with a products vendor? Uh, I think one of the first risks before we talk about the supplier side and uh, I've run into this quite often, is making sure that the specifications and the end user's expectations are crystal clear on the front end before even going to market the suppliers. Uh, oftentimes what happens is, uh, as, a, as a buying professional, uh, an end user or stakeholder may come to us uh, with an idea of what they want and what they need, or even a specification, but making sure and rationalizing that those specifications will end up producing the, the intended end result or suit the application that the end user is uh, expecting is really, really important and often overlooked. Uh, beyond that, within the elements of the contract and the risk between the supplier and the buyer, uh, some of the key things that we want to look at, of course, are uh, warranty terms and obligations. Uh, what is a supplier willing to warrant and under what circumstances and for how long? Uh, oftentimes included are service-related elements such as uh, training on the use of new hardware, or perhaps um, routine maintenance uh, on hardware or replacement of consumable parts uh, or even critical parts. Uh, some other elements, of course, are uh, uh, price and uh, guaranteeing price protection, particularly if uh, purchases have long lead times uh, where prices could, in theory, change. And ensuring that a contract makes it clear that prices are firm and fixed. Um, I would say beyond that, uh, some of the important things to be clear on are uh, who in the transaction is responsible for the shipment uh, of the goods and IT hardware in question, uh, having clarity around when the buying organization, the buyer, uh, takes ownership of those products uh, as a hedge against the risk in transit. This leads me to our a discussion about INCO terms. What are what are INCO terms and why are they important? Uh, INCO terms essentially are international commercial terms uh, established by the International Chamber of Commerce that govern global trade, global transactions, where we're buying up. Uh, uh, between two organizations uh, based in different geographies, different uh, you know countries. Um, and essentially, there's a whole suite of them that define the differences between uh, when, for example, a buyer or a seller uh, is responsible for the payment of freight costs or things such as customs tariffs and duties uh, for either import or export. Uh, they also define at what point uh, ownership and what we call title and transfer of risk moves from the selling organization to the buying organization. Mm -hmm. And I think, or would you say that the INCO terms sort of do the same thing as the UCC does in terms of domestic U.S. purchases? 
Uh, yes and no, and it, it all depends. Uh, the Uniform Commercial Code uh, can certainly define the obligations uh, between buyers and sellers, particularly Article 2, uh, that governs purchases and leases. Uh, but oftentimes the UCC, in particular Article 2, really comes into play where a contract between the parties lacks specificity or there is disagreement or lack of alignment in terms of the interpretation of those terms. Uh, where that ambiguity may exist, the UCC can typically come in and define and fill that void and determine the obligations between buyers and sellers. So it differs slightly in that it doesn't really define where uh, you know, title and transfer of risk come in per se, or who is responsible for freight and customs and related charges, uh, but rather clarifies uh, where, where there is a lack of clarity or uh, ambiguity exists. Mm -hmm. When you're, we're representing buyers, uh, what are the INCO terms that are most favorable for us? Uh, that sort of depends on uh, who wants to be responsible to control the movement of the freight. Uh, for example, uh, if we wanted to uh, place all of the uh, associated costs and risk uh, onto a selling organization, uh, which oftentimes we do, uh, one of the ANCO terms that might be most favorable would be uh, DDP, which stands for Delivered Duties Paid. Mm -hmm. uh, and essentially, essentially the, what that means is all of the associated costs with uh, the transport and delivery of the goods in question are the responsibility of the seller, and the buyer does not take possession of those goods uh, until they are actually received at the buyer's named location or, or their dock, for example. Uh, and that exists as a hedge against the uh, risk uh, in transit of any goods. For example, if we were importing goods on ocean freight and there was some sort of an issue or a problem uh, or damage that occurred in that process between point A to point B, uh, that would place the onus on the seller uh, to remedy that and or replace the goods. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. Well, talking about replacement and going back to the issue of warranties, do you ever find success in, help in having sellers expand upon or give longer warranty periods than what you might find in seller's documentation? Uh, yeah, quite often. A uh, great example of that would be uh, in instances where we may uh, initiate a purchase and receive goods, but not put them into service or install them right away or for a prolonged period of time. For example, uh, if an organization was to buy some backup servers so that had them on hand uh, in the event of a critical situation, uh, but we're not planning on putting those into service up to un unless the existing hardware were to fail, uh, you could be looking at a period of years uh, most sellers' typical warranties extend for a one-year period, mm -hmm. uh, which is also defined in the UCC, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, but again, in those cases, uh, we look ahead at year two or year three and hypothetically have a situation where at that point, we needed to put that hardware into service. Were there any damages or problems with it at that point? Uh, absent an extended warranty, uh, the onus would be on the buying organization to have to repair or replace that equipment. Right, right. And you had mentioned one of the key terms you look at is, uh, is training. And I, I often try to focus on that also. I mean, if I go to Best Buy and buy a corded phone, <laughs> oftentimes there are aspects about it that I just don't understand. You know, I plug it in, but I'm sure I don't get all the value out of it because, you know, I don't read RTFM, um, <laughs> and training would, would be very helpful. Do you often find that vendors provide adequate training, or is this something that, as a procurement buyer, um, you need to focus on and get that added to the contract to make sure you're getting the maximum value out of the deal for your customer? Yeah, so oftentimes uh, uh, suppliers and sellers will offer services like that um, in any number of forms. Uh, mm -hmm. Oftentimes it's simply uh, you know phone or remote support. Uh, in some cases where it's merited or, or the need is complicated, uh, they will uh, send resources on site 
mm-hmm. to support one or a group uh, of uh, the buyer's uh, employees and, and folks on the proper use and maintenance of, of thing, things like that. Uh, but it is important to ensure that if that's not clear or, or put forward on a supplier's quote, for example, yeah. uh, that it's included in the contract. Uh, so it's crystal clear what those obligations are and under what circumstances they will provide what level of training. And I find it's it's e- actually easy to get vendors to add additional training units or training hours. I mean, you know, the salespeople are really often generous in terms of sometimes even doubling the amount of training time associated with a product purchase because they realize that the, that's a very low cost way for them to lock in buyer engagement. So it's a, it's a great thing to ask for. Great point. Let's talk about force majeure. And, you know, you and I are recording this in early February, 2020, and the coronavirus outbreak is hitting China. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on force majeure. Is this a a term you spend a lot of time with? And, you know, in, in this specific instance, would you view this as a force majeure event that would, as a buyer, entitle you to get out of the deal and look at another supplier without any penalty? You know, that's a great, great question. Something I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, typically, uh, myself and probably many others in contracting capacities don't think a whole lot about force majeure, number one, because it's very rare that that comes into play, Yeah. although it can and has. Uh, and typically, the language that addresses or defines what is a force majeure event is pretty standard and typical across a broad range of industries, broad range of applications. Um, And it's pretty well understood by both sides what that means. Now, in the case of the coronavirus, as you know, uh, day by day, this continues to be a going concern. Uh, The influence and and reach uh, and spread of of this is is reaching potentially pandemic levels. And uh, organizations like the WHO uh, and and other uh, governments around the world uh, are beginning to uh, consider that and make preparations on how they're going to contend and deal with that. Uh, From a supply perspective, this definitely has the potential to impact, if not disrupt, uh, global supply chains. Yeah. Uh, as we see already. Well, it's happening already. It's happening yeah. already. Uh, it's, it's certainly affecting air travel. Yeah. Uh, businesses and governments are restricting or canceling flights to certain geographies in and out. Um, and that list continues to grow by the day. Uh, that in and of itself can be disruptive to business and uh, the management of supply chains and supplier relationships. Yeah. Uh, were this to continue uh, to a point that was uh, you know much broader than it is today, uh, certainly, this can impact things like ocean and air freight, yeah. uh, particularly air freight, uh, just given the nature of how this appears to be spreading. Uh, and I think relative to force majeure, it, it, it's quite interesting. I think depending on the level to which this might spread and the impact that it may ultimately have, uh, I think certainly uh, some people could and will uh, try to declare a force majeure event if the disruption to their supply chains or impact to their businesses was great enough right. to force them to uh, make a shift. Uh, to say um, uh, an area that may not be affected at all or as affected. Um, Another good example of that would be uh, the recent uh, uh, activity of the past few years around Brexit. Uh, In a couple Mm -hmm. of uh, commercial equipment deals that I had been working on a few years back uh, when this began, uh, there was some concern that Brexit could impact uh, trade and the movement of goods and import-export as well. And uh, we had considered at the time whether whether or not if that were to happen, uh, could our organization declare a force majeure event? And I believe we were prepared to at that point. Right, right. So I think a practice tip for those listening is if you're representing buyers, uh, having the right to terminate a contract without penalty, notwithstanding the fact that the seller may be claiming force majeure as an excuse to performance, 
okay, great. You have your excuse to performance, but I need my right to get out of the deal if you guys can't produce and supply in the way that we've contracted for. And I think that's a great point, Jay. And it's good that you could specify it that way. And of course, another mechanism that could allow for that would be termination for convenience language, because at that point, it wouldn't matter what the reasoning is. Right. Uh, it, it would just be a simple matter of uh, following any notification uh, requirements in the agreement in terms of how one party notifies the other. Yeah. Uh, and what amount of time is required for that to happen. But anytime we we can lay a greater degree of specificity in our contracts, the better. Yeah. And that actually leads to another interesting deal point um, that I, I consider in, in purchasing deals. The notice period for termination um, can be rather an interesting, difficult point to get to where the buyer may want a very short period for a termination for a cause, but vendors are looking for 60, 90 days, sometimes half a year. But it can go the other way sometimes, too. It certainly can. And a lot of times you'll see that. Um, and oftentimes uh, parties will want equality in whatever that number or that yeah. period is. But, for example, for a very critical service to a buying organization, uh, we might not want such a short term. We ne we negotiated a deal like that. That's right. Yeah, right. That's yeah, right. We, we might yeah. want 90 days or even more right. uh, because the ability to, to make a sourcing shift and implement a new service provider, for example, right. may be a very complex task uh, involving multiple stakeholders and functions within a business and not something that could be done within a simple 30-day window. So you're right. That could really go both ways. Yeah. One of the things I saw when we were working together at Zymergen is the uh, beneficial role that a IT or just a technology procurement professional, any procurement professional can play in the sourcing process, your sophistication and importantly, your ability to bring leverage to deals mm -hmm. to get better terms for your, for your client, employer, customer, it was, was impressive. Tell me, how do you recognize when you have leverage, what are the leverage points a buyer has and, and how do you use them effectively? Well, that's a great question. Uh, it really all depends on the context, but uh, in general, there are many levers that you can pull. Uh, one, of course, is understanding the buying organization's uh, buying power, the size of its uh, spend or economies of scale, as we would say. Um, it, is it a very large number in that space uh, or is it relatively small compared to, let's say, uh, uh, the other clients that a, a seller may have? So that sort of uh, dovetails into understanding uh, the supplier's position in the marketplace. And for example, what percent of their business does the buying organization make up? Uh, that helps determine just how important uh, to the selling organization uh, you are as a buyer, Right. number one. Uh, number two, oftentimes in businesses uh, such as Pete's, uh, where we are uh, both affiliated with and work with multiple brands and business units and organizations uh, outside of Pete's under a parent company, uh, JAB Holdings in this case, uh, there are many common needs uh, that can be leveraged. And so various business units can come together and work in consortium to increase and elevate that economy of scale, right. uh, which is helpful. Uh, the other is understanding uh, oftentimes the supplier's financial position uh, and what their financial vitality is like. Oftentimes, uh, suppliers that uh, have difficulty with uh, cash flow or working capital yeah. uh, may be much more eager uh, to make concessions in order to lock up business uh, or, or move quickly to lock up business, uh, which can be used to your advantage. Uh, and then the other is, to, again, just understanding, um, you know, what, what other customers or opportunities uh, could a, a seller be looking at uh, that might be more attractive than your own. So really doing due diligence and a little bit of market intelligence in the sourcing process yeah. uh, is really how you identify what levers you can pull. But there are also models and tools that you can use for that. Things like uh, SWOT analysis and yeah. orders by forces that, that are just tools that, that can help define the strengths between buyers and sellers. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool.
Last question. Um, how do deal lawyers help you or how can a deal lawyer help you get your job done more efficiently, help you negotiate better terms on behalf of your your clients? Well, as you know, Jay, uh, legal is a critical resource to uh, any any sourcing or contracting organization uh, in so many ways. Uh, number one, uh, not everybody is very well versed and understands what a lot of the language in many of these contract agreements are to effectively interpret that and understand the impact or consequence to the business and whether or not it represents an opportunity to negotiate on. Uh, obviously, uh, attorneys like yourself are going to be experts in this and be able to provide guidance where there's a lack of knowledge or subject matter expertise internally. Um, the other is oftentimes acting as a strong third party leverage uh, rather than simply uh, two parties, uh, two persons, a buyer and a seller sitting across the table from one another trying to work through some of these details Oftentimes, being able to defer to uh, an attorney, a true subject matter expert in the room uh, on a particular point or another as part of the strategy can like gravitas and lend some weight uh, to specific points. Uh, and the other element of it is help, helping the uh, business understand business risk, where we talk about things like indemnity provisions and limits of liability, uh, insurance requirements, um, where we talk about things like uh, waivers of subrogation and other elements that um, basically commit the company to one level of exposure or another, uh, or, or um, sort of uh, engender the company to uh, some, something that could come back and be a real uh, consequence, either financially or otherwise. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I'm going to use my prerogative because I'm host of the podcast to ask <laughs> one more question because right. I, I should have asked this up front. You know, there's a lot of battling back and forth on whose paper to use, buyer <laughs> paper, customer paper, vendor paper, whatever. Um, what's your perspective on that? Is that a fight worth having and when? Well, you know, it, yes, it is in many cases. Um, when it makes sense, uh, the, the preference would be to uh, use the buying organization's paper, our paper, let's say, as a, as a buyer. Mm -hmm. um, there are many reasons for this. Number one, uh, it's often been vetted and reviewed uh, with the assistance of legal. Uh, uh, the, the terms are well known. Uh, they're, they're almost always favorable to the buying organization in an uh, inequitable way. Uh, and that often forms the basis as a good starting point uh, to negotiate. Uh, but there are some cases where uh, a buying organization uh, such as Beats may not have templates that are suitable for every conceivable need uh, or for a good or a service out there. Uh, I've had cases where, uh, as you know, uh, for example, software and cloud uh, licensing agreements, cloud software agreements, things of that sort, yeah. um, they're often not cookie cutter and they're very specific. Yeah. And it would be very difficult for a buying organization to have something on hand that would be suitable in all cases. And, and uh, another point on that, is oftentimes the selling organization is much, much larger than the buying organization yeah. and, and owns uh, intellectual property rights or, or sort of has a monopoly, if you will, uh, on the technology, let's say, in question. Uh, that really renders the buying organization um, unable to really uh, um, have the leverage to negotiate the notion uh, of using your own paper. So uh, depending on the complexity of the need uh, and uh, the leverage of the organization uh, and just the suitability for what's what's at stake, what, what we're buying, yeah. uh, will determine and dictate. But generally speaking, as a general rule, uh, where, where it makes sense and, it, and it's feasible, uh, we want to start with our paper. Yeah, I think that's right. Chris, thank you for your time today. Appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, Jay, thanks so much.
Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Chris Nixon of Pete's Coffee and Tea, talking about technology product purchases. It was real fun to interview Chris. He's such a a great resource to any enterprise looking to buy or that actually buys products and services, not just technology products and services. I'm often surprised at how few of my clients have professional procurement people on their team. I think they're a real value add to any enterprise of real scale. In any case, uh, that's it for this episode of the Technology Law Podcast. Once again, you can learn more about me or reach me through my law firm website at jwardlaw.com. I look forward to hearing you, hearing from you if you have any questions and uh, look forward to speaking with you or chatting with you or talking with you through my next episode. Thanks for listening.